I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 49. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 49. This evening we will be concluding Jesus' Sermon on the Plains, which we've been considering the last few weeks, which has extended from verse 20 to verse uh, 49 So Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 49. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Our Lord says, For no good tree bears bad fruits, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruits. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, in God's providence, it is wonderful that we have recorded in our Bibles actual portions of sermons that were given by Jesus and his apostles. And this section, this section of, from verse 20 to verse 49 is one such example, a sermon given from Jesus himself. And this sermon, uh, which we have been considering, has really two main sections. To remind you of what we've covered, this sermon began with these beatitudes and these corresponding woes, teaching his disciples that their blessedness does not reside in their circumstances, whether they be good or bad, but in their membership in the kingdom of God. Their blessedness transcends our current and present circumstances. But then Jesus goes on and he asks, well, how, if you are a member of the kingdom of God, how then shall you live? What should the ethic be of members of the kingdom? We saw how how Jesus has exhorted his people to love their enemies, not just other Christians or people who align with us in terms of our convictions, but people who are very different from us. And their convictions, maybe even their politics, etc. 
We are to love them. We are to bless them, pray for them, do them good. What about people within the kingdom? Fellow brothers and sisters, other members of the kingdom of God. What do we do when we're sinned against, when we're annoyed by by someone else? We are to be quick to have that disposition of forgiveness, of generosity in our words, our prayers, and our deeds, and be quick to confess our own sins, first and foremost. But now, in verse 43, we, be, we come to the heart of the matter, the heart of Jesus' sermon on the plains. Now, when I say we come to the heart of the matter, I mean this in both a literal and metaphorical sense. As we will see, in a literal sense, Jesus is referring, Jesus is teaching us about our heart all these actions which he has prescribed for us in this sermon are impossible to do if we don't have a changed heart. It all begins with our hearts. But I also mean this in a metaphorical sense, as this teaching is arguably the central teaching of his ethic on the kingdom. So as we dive deeper into the, the heart of Jesus' sermon on the plains here, I'd like us to consider uh, three brief points. First, we'll consider how we need new hearts. Second, we need sanctified hearts. And lastly, we need hearts founded upon the rock of Christ. So we need new hearts We need sanctified hearts, and we need hearts that are founded upon the rock of Christ. Well, we need new hearts. We need new hearts. Well, one of the great aspects of Jesus' teachings that we see throughout the Gospels is that he oftentimes appeals to imagery that's known to everybody whether you're learned or unlearned, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you've had many experiences in life or or very few experiences in life. He appeals to everybody, and he does so here in this passage as well, as he uses this imagery of trees. He says, you know, a, a good, healthy tree? Yeah, a good, healthy tree, ordinarily, they're gonna bear good and healthy fruit. But a diseased tree, a rotten tree, Ordinarily, they're going to produce rotten fruit or no no fruit at all. And then he goes on to say, you know, figs and figs would have been commonplace in that time and place of Jesus' day. He says, figs, you know, where do you pick figs? Do you go to a thorn bush? No, you go to a fig tree. And and grapes, where, where do you find grapes? On a bramble bush? No, you go to a vine. This is something everybody would have known. It was basic. His central point in verses 43 and 44 here is that the root affects the fruit. The root affects the fruit. And in verse 45, Jesus makes this explicit. He makes this explicit that he is, is talking about the heart. This, this, this imagery of, of trees, this imagery of, of figs and of grapes, it's all an illustration to teach us about our hearts. 
as he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The root of a tree points to our heart. And the fruit points to our actions. The root affects the fruit. Our heart affects our actions. That's his point here. Now, what, do, what does Jesus mean when he refers to the heart? Is he, is he referring to our literal organ that is pumping blood? Well, no. The Bible uses this, this language of the heart to refer to our, our soul, our inner person. You could say the control seat of our will, our emotions, our thoughts. Jesus is saying that our actions spring forth from our heart as fruit proceeds from, from the root of a tree. Well, as we consider this teaching, this truth in light of, of who we are, is this good news or is this bad news? Is this good news or this bad news for, especially for fallen human beings? Well, this is bad news. The Bible's replete, replete with, with references about how we are in Adam. That is, we share in his condemnation, we share in the corruption that his first sin has caused. Our heart is deceitful beyond all measure. We are not the good tree. We naturally are the rotten tree. David himself says, in sin, my mother conceived me. This is to say, it's, it's not as if we are naturally good people and we just ordinarily do bad things. We just, or, or we just uh, sometimes do bad things. We sometimes bear a bad apple. It's not as if we're a good person and we just have been corrupted by bad influences, society, and other things. No, this means that we are rotten to the very core of who we are. We are corrupt. Sin is all that we know naturally. Listen to the, how the Apostle Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Apart from Christ, apart from the work of the Spirit upon our hearts and lives, we cannot please God. We cannot please God. Now again, think of it in terms of this imagery that Jesus is giving us with trees. A rotten tree can only do what rotten trees can do. If you think about it, what can rotten trees do? Well, they can bear bad fruit. They can bear no fruit at all. They can fall down. They can only act within their nature. They can't all of a sudden do what good trees do. They can't act contrary to their nature. They can only do what rotten trees do. And so too with fallen, unregenerate sinners in Adam. We can only act within our nature. We can't. We're powerless to act contrary to who we are. 
We can change our nature. Now, this doesn't mean that unregenerate or unbelievers can't do externally good things. We all can probably think of many good things that have been done for society that, that, that were done by non-Christians. But what Paul is saying here is that though they might be externally good, they, they don't fundamentally please God because the motivation for those works is not for the glory of God, but for the glory of themselves. It's proceeding from a rotten heart, as it were, a rotten tree. Or you could think of it uh, like this. You know, a rotten tree can at times bear an apple, a piece of fruit that on the out- outside looks like it has the appearance of healthiness, but once you slice it open, it's full of rotten worms. That's sort of like what these you know, external good, good works are, are like of, uh, of unbelievers. Well, what's the solution? If we are all born in Adam and thus born as rotten trees to use this imagery that Jesus is giving us, what is the solution? Well, the solution is that we need new hearts. We need a change of nature. We need to be changed from, from, from that, that rotten tree to a good, healthy, and living tree. And this is what Jesus describes as new birth. Being born again. One must be born again to see the kingdom of God. That's referring to this transformation from being a rotten tree to a good and healthy tree. This work of the Spirit is no less miraculous, no less supernatural than when God created all things with but a word in creation. If you are believing in Christ this evening, you've been transformed, you've been given this new nature, and that's no less a miraculous work than creation ex nihilo. That is a, a wonderful truth to dwell upon. And this is so encouraging, so encouraging uh, for us in, in so many ways. I imagine we all have unbelieving friends, family members, neighbors who don't know the Lord, maybe they've walked away from the Lord. Our words, our efforts may seem, may, may seem to be just falling on deaf ears. We may seem like we never have the right thing to say, but at the end of the day, we rest not in our wisdom, not in our intellect. We rest in the fact that it's the Spirit of God who's in the business of changing rotten trees to good and healthy trees. It's the Spirit of God that we trust, not ourselves. And this should make us fall on our knees in prayer to do this work for those in our lives who who need new hearts, who need to be transformed into a good and healthy and living tree. Brothers and sisters, we need new hearts. We need new hearts, hearts that can only be brought about by the Spirit of God. But once we have these new hearts, we need these new hearts to be sanctified. We need sanctified hearts. Now Jesus of course, is using this imagery of trees. The Spirit of God transforms us to be a rotten tree to a good and healthy tree. 
However, that doesn't mean that we don't still have some rot within us. We do. We've been made into this, this good tree, but we still have some rotten roots. The Apostle Paul describes the same reality about our nature, but he uses different imagery. You know, he says that we've been born again and we have this new man living within us. But yet we still have this old man. We now have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, but we also have this sinful flesh which persists in our life. And the life of sanctification is the life of cultivating, watering that good tree and laying the axe to the rotten roots. Or as Paul says, it's making alive the new man and putting off the old man. Living according to the Spirit, putting off the flesh. Putting on and putting off. That's the life of sanctification. The life of sanctification that we are called to. And so the first step, the first step in in this life of sanctification, Christian growth, is recognizing that this battle of putting off and putting on It's waged in the heart. It's waged in the heart. All too often, we forget this. We begin to think that, no, the battle of the Christian life is really waged at at the realm of our external actions. We just need to stop doing X and start doing Y. We just need to stop gossiping and building one another up. We just need to stop having such a short fuse and being frustrated and angry and start acting more patient. However, if we believe that, it's like cutting off the very top of a weed and thinking that we've solved, we've solved the problem. No, it's just going to grow back the next day. We need to deal with the competing treasures of our heart. That's where the battle is waged. In fact, listen to James chapter 4, verse 1. He says this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In a lot of ways, you could expand upon this reference of quarrels, fights, to really all sinful responses and actions. And James is saying, where do those sinful responses and actions come from? The passions, the desires of the heart, the competing desires of the heart the heart. And Jesus says the same thing in verse 45. As he expands upon this relationship between the heart and our actions, as he says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. And he concludes by saying, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Notice that Jesus says that our hearts naturally treasure something. We have treasuring hearts. They intuitively, naturally attach themselves to some treasure. So think of it this way. Our hearts, our hearts are are treasuring something, consciously, unconsciously, and our actions are the pursuit of that treasure. Our hearts are treasuring something, And our our actions are the pursuit of that treasure. Now, these treasures of our heart, they can be those things which are explicitly forbidden. 
Think of lust and covetousness. That's attaching to a treasure that is forbidden for us. However, there are many good things in this life, good things in this life that we can treasure that are not inherently sinful. Examples of such could be different sets of circumstances. A better financial position. Material possessions. Relationships. Whether it be in marriage, whether it be in friendships. Desire for people's approval. Many other things. Things that are not inherently evil. Not inherently sinful. It's not wrong to to treasure these things. However, where we go astray is when we impute to these things an ultimate status, a godlike status. And so it becomes the ultimate treasure in our lives. What's the word for that? Idolatry. Idolatry. John Calvin spoke of the human heart as being an idol factory. We're constantly treasuring things that we should not be treasuring. And the things we do treasure, we impute to them this godlike ultimate status. And our actions are in pursuit of that treasure. One way you can tell whether a treasure has become an idol is by considering how you respond when someone or something stands in between you and the possession of that treasure. And if it's a sinful response, frustration, anger, getting depressed, maybe an indicator that that's, that's an idol. It's a treasure that's gone askew. Now, for instance, if you're, if you're treasuring leisure time, maybe it's a hobby, and something comes up, how do you react? If you're treasuring material possession, something gets damaged, lost, taken, how do you react? If you're treasuring people's approval and you fail in the eyes of others, how do you react? I guess to think, uh, think, think through this past week and this, our sinful responses our sinful actions. And ask yourselves, what do those sinful responses and actions say to you about the treasures of your hearts? The idols of your hearts. We are called to, to wage the battle of the Christian life at this heart level. That's how we're going to take out the root of our sin, not just snip off the top of the weed, as it were. Well, this leads us to the inevitable question of what should we be treasuring? If we're honest with ourselves, I think we all realize that we constantly are treasuring things we shouldn't be treasuring. We're constantly running after idols, but what should we be treasuring? Well, if you're thinking Christ, that's the correct answer. Christ is meant to be our treasure. We're united to Christ, and we have all that we need in him. Whatever we're looking for in the idols of this present evil age, we we already have by virtue of being united to Christ. If you remember the beginning of this, this sermon on the plains, Jesus began with these beatitudes. 
We're all about how our blessedness resides in our membership in the kingdom of God, in relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our blessedness is found. That's where our joy and peace and identity and worth are to be found. And thus we don't need to look to the things of this passing evil age to give us what we already have in Christ. We are called to treasure Christ. Now, after, after we do recognize that the battle of the Christian life resides in the heart, and we recognize the idols of our heart, oftentimes we still feel powerless to change, especially when we're in that, that cycle of sin. With each cycle, we just grab, we latch harder and faster upon those idols, and we feel powerless, powerless to change. In a very real sense, we are powerless to change in and of ourselves. Because it's the only the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, who can break that cycle, who can change us at the heart level, who can root out that sin. And so this, again, should cause us to pray. That should be our instinctive response to the idols of our heart. Pray for the Spirit's work in our hearts and in our lives. Well, just like a plant or a tree needs good soil, needs water, moisture to be able to to grow, so to the Spirit, the Spirit who alone gives growth in our Christian lives, uses means to bring about this growth. What are these means? Well, prayer, as I just mentioned. But also the Word, the Word as we read it privately, as the Word as we read it with our families, the Word as we hear it preached in moments such as this. The word as we see it displayed visibly in the sacraments of of the Lord's Supper and baptism. But also secondarily, the people of God, the local church, the communion of saints where we have the opportunity to encourage one another, to build one another up in the faith, to exhort one another so that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is to say, all of these means are meant to draw our eyes to Christ who is to be our treasure and away from the idols of this present evil age. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we all can recognize this is a struggle every single day of the year. To treasure Christ the way we should, above not only the forbidden things of this this age, but even the good things, not allowing those good things to become ultimate, this is hard. And we fail so often in this. So how can we ever have confidence to stand before a holy God? We read in their call to worship that to stand in the presence of God, one needs clean hands and a pure heart. How in the world can we have confidence to stand in his presence after considering our own hearts? Well, this leads us now to the fact that we need hearts founded upon the rock of Christ. We need hearts founded upon the rock of Christ. So we'll briefly consider this, this next passage, verses 46 through 49. And here I'm, I'm mixing metaphors a bit as Jesus moves on from this tree imagery to consider 
the imagery of a house, a house built on a foundation, a house built on no foundation. So if you look with me at verse 46, Jesus is, is responding to those who call upon him merely with their mouths, but their, their fruit testifies to the fact that they still have rotten hearts. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so here he, he's using the imagery of a house to contrast the true disciple from the false disciple, the true disciple from the hypocrite. He says the true disciple is the one who hears these words of Christ and puts them into action, does them. And what is he like? Well, he's like a man who, who digs deep to be able to build his house upon a sure foundation. The false disciple, well, he is like, uh, he is like the man who, who doesn't care about the foundation. He just wants to see his house built, and so he has no foundation. And this is the one who, who takes no account of, of Jesus' words, does not heed his ethic whatsoever. What happens when the flood comes? The house that's built on the foundation survives, and the house built on no foundation is swept away. So what does this imagery mean? Well, this imagery of the flood is is a reference to God's judgment. God's final judgment. This reference to the foundation, the rock, that's referring to Christ. Especially when we consider it in light of the rest of Scripture, as Paul describes Christ as not only a foundation, but the cornerstone of the foundation of the church. Furthermore, Christ is explicitly referred to as the rock of Christ. It's important to interpret this passage in light of the previous one, with the tree and the fruit. Because this passage is not not saying that we somehow pass through God's judgment through our own obedience or works, because what is our works? Or what are our works? They are merely fruit and evidence of our hearts, a heart that either disbelieves or a heart that believes. It's that faith alone that justifies. That fruit is merely fruit and evidence of that reality. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is whether we are on the rock of Christ. If you're not on the rock of Christ, it doesn't matter how nice of a house one builds, it's going to be swept away. What matters if you're on the sure foundation of Christ, his finished work. So as we continue this life of sanctification, as we continue to do battle with the idols of our own heart, let us rest in the fact that we stand upon the rock of Christ. That's where our confidence comes from. That's where our assurance comes from as we seek this pilgrimage of the Christian life. So brothers and sisters, Loved in the Lord, we have considered this evening the heart of Jesus' sermon, the sermon on the plains. And ironically, this, the heart of his sermon is all about the heart. So let us give thanks that we have been given new hearts that, that are being sanctified and are secure on the rock of Christ. Let us pray.